And now please take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 6. We've been focusing on Romans chapter 6 for several weeks now. I didn't bother counting it up, but I know it's more than just a few. And so we're still on Romans 6, and we'll probably have a few more weeks at least. Drawing to the end of this section, Romans 6, 1 through 14. I'm not going to read those verses now, but I'll read them and incorporate them into my um, beginning part of my sermon as a review. But let's ask the Lord's blessing as we come to this portion of Scripture once again. Let's ask his, ask his blessing in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We believe it is the very word of God, but we also believe that we need the help of your Holy Spirit presently to understand it and to profit from it. And especially as we come to this section on uh, the application of the gospel to our lives, we sense a need for your help. So send your Holy Spirit to help both preacher and hearer alike that the word of God would come to our hearts with power, with clarity, with conviction, and that it would bring forth abundant fruit in our lives for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we ask these things. Amen. Amen. I feel like I've begun to linger, or you could even use a more negative word, dawdle, as I've come to the first part of Romans 6. Some weeks I've thought I'm going to cover a little bit more and then I end up deciding to cover less and maybe, uh, you know, I'll confess it could be laziness is a little part of it when I think, well, I've done enough work here for two sermons and I can probably just break this into two and I have at least a good part of a sermon ready for next week. But it is very important teaching that we've come to in Romans chapter 6, like the whole of the epistle, but especially here in this chapter because it focuses on how we live the Christian life. And I will say, even when I've made remarks about how I've slowed down the pace, um, and I've come to the end of messages sometimes, and I've said, that's all the farther I can get today, Inevitably, it seems I've had people, and it's not always the same people, who have encouraged me to go as slow as I need to because of the value of this teaching. So I, I do take encouragement to do that. Uh, but I don't intend to continue the slower pace after I finish verse 14. I expect to pick it up again. Um, I thought till yesterday that I was going to finish verse 14 today, but I'm not going to do that. And I know that I won't do that because I just left the notes on that section back in my study. So here's my review to start out. And then what I'll at least do, God willing, is finish verse 13 today. I preached on it last week. I left about half my notes uncovered. I was going to save them for a rainy day maybe. But I'll just, I, I thought it's important enough for me to spend at least another Lord's Day on verse 13. Let's begin at the verse 1. We started out with that, I called it a likely but bad question. In verse 1, after Paul has laid out the gospel, how sinners are saved by grace through Jesus Christ alone, not by our own works, 
Paul then raises this question, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, since the the Bible teaches that the way sinners are saved is not through our own good works at all, but through the good works of another, Jesus Christ, can we just then say, especially since it said at the end of the previous chapter, the more sin there is, That just means the more grace that God manifests in forgiving sin, and that brings him more glory. Can't we just reason then, why don't we just continue in sin, that grace may abound? Because sin is pleasing to the flesh. So how about that for life from here on? And Paul says, no, that's not a good question. You see that based on his answer. It's a question, I call it a bad question, because it's a question that a Christian should not even think about asking. And so Paul gives us his answer in verses 2 through 7, and he starts out with just the basic answer, and that's absolutely not. Christians shouldn't think that way, and we shouldn't think that way, in part because we've died to sin. Look at verse 2. Certainly not we shouldn't continue to sin, with the argument that then grace will abound. He says it would be a contradiction to who and what we are in Christ. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? That's the basic and first part of the answer. Absolutely not. The second part of the answer is this, that if we've been baptized as believers, we've come to faith in Christ, we've turned from our sins, we've found forgiveness in Christ, then we've gotten baptized, a very significant thing. The baptized, it says in verse 3, were baptized into Christ's death. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And then the following verses, verses 4 through 7, I won't read all of those, but they make the point that we, Christians, who were baptized were thus buried with Christ and also raised. In other words, our baptism pictures the fact that Christ died, then he was put into a tomb for three days, but then he came out of the tomb. So you've seen baptisms here. Many of you have been baptized, obviously. You've been dunked into the water, symbolizing the death and burial of Christ, but you've come out of the water. In fact, every one of you has come out of the water, symbolizing that if you're a Christian and a true believer in Christ, you now have a new life, as Paul states it at the end of verse 4. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life, because if we become Christians, there's something that's happened to us that has paralleled the death and resurrection of Christ. And in our case, it's that we've died to sin. If someone has had his sins forgiven, according to the Bible, he's died to sin. And he has been raised. He has been changed. He's been changed himself within. But also we could say, and this is the the point Paul makes here in this chapter, his whole orientation has been changed. His whole disposition has been changed. The, The whole posture of his life is different now. He's died to what Paul called uh, sin, condemnation, and death. That's the life of every sinner coming into this world till he's brought out of that life by the work of God in Christ when he is saved. But when he comes to repent of his sins and turn from his sins, 
by God changing his heart, now he comes into a whole new realm. And in Paul's language in Romans, we've looked at it in the text, it's in chapter 5, it's in chapter 6. He's come into the realm of righteousness, no, yeah, righteousness, justification, and life. Everything is different. So the answer to the question, should we continue in sin, having had our sins forgiven? Paul's answer is emphatically no. And then we came in the next place to verses 8 through 14. And I gave that the heading, our confidence regarding our life in Christ. Our confidence regarding our life in Christ. And I had, it looks like three or four headings here. One, the first one is our confidence. That's verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. There's our confidence. Okay, Paul has explained this. Now, as a Christian, hearing that, understanding that, I should have great confidence as I live the life. Perhaps the most famous Christian hymn in the world is Amazing Grace. And it has a line in it that really encapsulates the Bible teaching on the subject of the Christian life when it says, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Because that's what the Christian life is. And even if you just think of the battle with, against sin that Romans 6 speaks about, that's a difficult life. But the point is, even though the Bible acknowledges the difficulty of the Christian life, and I'll say something about that in a bit, Paul is saying, we believe, verse 8, that if we died with Christ, we shall also live with him. In other words, God has given me new life. I walk in newness of life. He hasn't put me in a battle. Like, think of Ephesians chapter 6, our battle against principalities and powers, our battle against the power of sin dwelling within my own heart. He hasn't put us in that battle and left us unarmed. We have a whole... Um, set of armor, according to Ephesians 6. And Paul is saying, God has changed us to the point that it's not a losing battle we're fighting if we're in Christ. So that's, a, that's our confidence, verse 8. Then we looked at the basis of our confidence, verses 9 and 10. It's what Christ did for us, coupled with the fact that we are in Christ if we're His. We're united to Him. So we are united with him when he died. And when we're converted, when we come to saving faith in Christ, we enter into that union with Christ experientially. And that's what he's writing about here, verses 9 and 10. Why do we believe we shall also live with him? The end of verse 8. Well, verses 9 and 10 tell us, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Our confidence is what, in what Christ did for us. Not in what we can do for ourselves. It's what Christ did for us. And then we looked at its practical application in our lives. Um, in verses 8 and 11 to start. Verse 8, I said, we should be confident. And then secondly, regarding 
verse 11, it says, we should reckon ourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, it's not just theology to be left on the pages of the Bible that we read here in Romans 6. It's truth, it is theology, but it is to make a difference in our life. And the difference starts with my understanding what Christ has done for me, and that if I'm a Christian, I am in Christ. I was in him when he died on that cross because I was chosen in him, and I'm in him now, and I've entered into experiential, experiential union with him when I became a Christian. I need to think that way, that I am dead to sin, as dead as Christ died, to kill sin, I am dead to sin, and as alive as he was to triumph over sin and death in his resurrection, I walk in newness of life. God has broken into my life. I need to remember that and think that way, and then that'll lead to my living that way. And that's what we see in verse 12, as we think of the practical application in our lives. In verse 12, we're told we must not let sin reign in our bodies. Verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. I think I mentioned last week that there was at least one commentator who made the point that maybe Paul stated it that way because it's really an impossibility for a true Christian to let sin reign. Because the point of this passage is God, in saving you, if you're a Christian, has broken the reign of sin. Sin used to be your boss. It's the boss of everyone who comes into this world. As a Christian, though, you can say this, sin is not the boss of me anymore. And Paul is saying, now understanding that, make sure you live that way. Don't let sin reign. Don't act like the person who asked the question theoretically or hypothetically at the beginning of the verse, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul's answer is no. But you need to think it through and you need to act that way. And then he gives us some more particulars in verse 13. So a fourth way of practical application of this point that he makes here is this. We must present our members to God and not to sin. Every part of us can think, especially in terms of our physical members. Look at verse 13. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And that's the text we focused on last week. And I started out with some observations and applications of that point. And I'm just going to repeat briefly the first couple of things I said, and then I'm going to give you the two things I left unsaid and uh, finish that up with, chat, with um, verse 13. And then, God willing, the uh, deck will be cleared, or maybe in uh, terms of this last week, the driveway will be cleared enough so we can uh, just have verse 14 on it for next Lord's Day morning. But I said some things first about the battle against sin. And I said there were various images that the Bible uses to teach us about how we should fight against sin. 
I said in some places it tells us to mortify sin or to kill it. Colossians 3.5, mortify or kill your members that are on the earth. You're supposed to go after sin with everything within you. I like the language of Spurgeon in one sermon. I don't remember what he was preaching on. But he said, we are to fight against sin and we're to do it. He said, we are to fight to the knife. In other words, your, um, your rifle is out of ammunition. You're facing your enemy. You don't have a grenade you can lob. You're in a war. It's going to come down to hand-to-hand combat. It might be difficult, ugly, bloody. Fight to the knife. Do whatever it takes to kill sin. That's one image in the Bible. Another image is to abstain from sin. Think of the passages um, like 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Flee immorality. Paul also wrote... Uh, to Timothy, I think in 2 Timothy, or first, I can't remember, flee youthful lusts, 2 Timothy. Or in 1 Peter 2.11, Peter said it this way, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. Keep away from sin. Don't say, you know, I can win this battle. If God gives you an opportunity to just walk away, then do like Solomon said to his son. Stay away from the immoral woman. Do not even go near her door. Well, take me two minutes longer to go down a different street. Go down that street. Abstain from sin. Here, as I said last week, the method or the tactic we use in trying to not let sin reign is that we resist We simply refuse. I use the example of Jesus in the desert. He was faced by the devil. The father hadn't given him permission yet to leave the desert. But he needed to stand there, face the temptation of Satan, and just say no. And I quoted Titus 2.12 in a translation that I, I really like because of the way it states it at this point. It says, the grace of God has appeared and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present evil age. And the point is, if you don't say no to sin at point after point after point, if you're a Christian, you can't live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life. You have to fight against sin. So that's what I said about the battle against sin And then I just gave some examples of ways that we should practically apply this. I'll just remind you, I spoke about using different of our members of our body. Whether it's our eyes, you don't look upon things that are going to tempt you to sin. Our mind or our brain, if you will, a physical member. You don't don't use your mind to just sit around thinking about things that are sinful, like on a Sunday morning, sitting in a service, thinking about the work on your desk and what you're going to do first on Monday morning. Is it a strong temptation? Yes. But is it resisting or saying no to just sit there and let yourself do it? Because you'll be ahead of the game on Monday morning? It's not right. It's giving your members... To sin. 
and not to righteousness. Don't present your members, not your, not your mind, not your eyeballs, not your body, not your hands, your fingers, your mouth, your tongue. Don't present them to sin. And Paul states it in a negative way and in a positive way. The first part of verse 13 is negative. Don't present your members to sin. Say instead, I have a new master. He doesn't want me to do that. I, therefore, am not doing it. And then there's a positive. Do present all of your members to God. Or notice how he states it. Present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members, every single one of them, as instruments of righteousness to God. Was Paul not aware that Christians cannot live a life in this body still and in this age 100% free from sin? Of course he was aware. Of course he knew it was a battle. That's why he said, reckon yourselves to be dead. That's why he said, you need to not let sin reign. That's why he said, don't present your members to sin. He was aware but the goal is, and this is what we need to aim at, brethren, as Christians for all of our life, present your entire self to God for good all the days of your life. And then today, I just want to come back and touch on two things that I didn't get to last week. And one of them, I had thought I was going to just leave it, but um, I think it was one of my fellow pastors who mentioned this point after, after that morning, and I said, you know, I had that in my notes. Maybe I'll do it next week, and that's what I'm doing. So the first thing is this. I want to say something about the simplicity and difficulty of the Bible's teaching on sanctification or mortification of sin. Sanctification means getting more holy. There's a negative side to it. That's killing sin. The positive side of it is becoming more like Christ. More and more obeying God's commands and being like Jesus who always obeyed every single one of his father's commands. That's our goal, to be like Christ and to remove ourselves more and more from sin. It won't happen all the way in this life, but it's the will of God. It's what's pleasing to God. It's what God commands us to do and we all need to aim at it. So, the simplicity and the difficulty of following the Bible's teaching on sanctification or on mortification of sin. And when I say the simplicity, what I mean is this. Putting sin to death, abstaining from sin, is the way the Bible presents how we do that. It's not as difficult as the perspective that our society has on how to get rid of sin. It's not as difficult as the way the world views this subject. I'm going to think just for terms of ease of making my point. It applies to every sin. But I'm thinking especially of what we used to call in this world. I mean, I'm pretty old, so I know. We used to call them sexual disorders. If we look at it from a biblical standpoint, we would call them perversions. 
You know, but deflecting from the teaching of God's word, you shall not commit adultery. Those things are sin. And yet the world wants to say, no, 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 they're not sins. Even though the world itself used to call them disorders, you could find them in the, um, I can't remember at this moment what it is, the book is called, but um, this, these put out by the American Psychiatric Association, and it lists all these disorders. Well, there used to be a lot of things that the Bible calls sin that were in that book. They called them disorders. Now it's just different ways that people like to think and act. Okay? So the world looks at it a certain way. And the world says, well, you know, you, you can't try this at home. You, you can't try to help somebody uh, who does something that the whole world looks at as gross, wicked, and terribly problematic for someone living in society. We need to stop looking at that as a bad thing. It's just a different thing. It's what that person struggles with. So, you know, you can't just open up the Bible and say you need to do this and stop doing that. That's the simplicity of the Bible's way of approaching it. You need professionals. You probably need drugs. You may need surgery to help someone. And if you're not going to approach it that way, here's the point we're at nowadays. In some places, it's against the law to say that, well, I'm a pastor and I'm going to sit down and try to approach this person's problem as what the Bible calls it, sin. And I'm just going to tell them, understand that that's the way it is. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what the God of heaven says. And now, stop it. And start doing what the Bible says you should do. That's the way to peace in your heart. That's the way to peace in your relations with everyone in society. That's the right way to peace with the God of heaven. And that's the way to avoid the terrible coming wrath on the day of judgment. That's the teaching of the Bible. That's pretty simple. But like I say, that's not the way the world looks at it. I'm simply saying it's not that complicated what the Bible teaches. It's not that complicated. There's a whole realm or I should say a whole range of different sins. As you know, if you know the word of God in the Bible, summarized in the Ten Commandments, but think of all the different branches of all those sins that are identified in the Ten Commandments. There are a lot of different sins, and, and there are a lot of complicated sins. But my point is, it's not that complicated the way the Bible tells us to overcome sin. Let's just go back to one passage in the Old Testament. It's a passage that Paul actually quotes later in Romans 10, but it's a different point that's made in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy 30, I say it's a different point made. It's actually the same point. That's why Paul quotes it. But when he quotes it in Romans 10, he's talking about belief in Christ and obedience to the gospel, if you will. But here, it's just talking about obeying God's commandments. Avoiding sin, avoiding what God says not to do, and doing what he says to do. And notice verse 14. 
In fact, let's start with verse 13. But verse 14 is especially the verse I have in view. It says, well, you know what? Let me start at verse 11. We'll get the whole idea. For this commandment, in other words, what God is telling them to do, what Moses is writing for them to do, this commandment which I command you today, it is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. Moses heard the word from God and spoke it to them. Moses, before he died, committed it to writing. There it is. And it's been there for that long. And we've heard a lot more since from various prophets and apostles now in the New Testament. Here, here it is. Here's what God's will is. And the answer to all of the most difficult problems you and I face in our lives is really in the Bible. And it comes down to it that it's a matter of fighting against sin fighting against the powers of darkness, and it basically always boils down to this, don't do this, or stop doing this, and do this instead. Or to put in Paul's words in another place in the New Testament, put off those things and put on these. It's not that complicated that is keeping God's commands. Whatever your sins may be. Romans 6, 12, and 13 not only could possibly help you, might help you a lot, but they in fact will help you if you do what they say. Verse 12, therefore, if you're a believer in Christ, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now when I say this, I am not saying that overcoming sin in your life is easy. I already quoted the hymn Amazing Grace and saying, said that as we think of the Christian life as a battle against spiritual forces of darkness, including the sin within our own selves, I already says it's through many dangers, toils, and snares. That's basically taking the Apostle Paul's words and saying, through many afflictions, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's difficult. He calls the Christian life a fight and a race because it is. And part of what he's referring to is this battle against sin. Because he says in the end of 1 Corinthians 9, he says, the way that I have to live as a Christian man, even as an apostle, is I have to beat my body daily. In other words, he's talking about, he was just getting a little more... Um, illustrative about what he's writing about here, not letting sin reign in his mortal body. 
Not presenting his members as instruments of righteousness to sin. How does that make sense then? I have to beat my body. Because I have that within me, Paul is saying, that always still wants to go in the wrong direction. I mean, let's say Paul was kind of a, um, I don't know, passionate man by nature. And maybe, and I don't know this, but maybe he kind of, you know, was lent uh, his his he had the tendency to go in the direction of being overly harsh in his reaction to what he saw as sin. One of the reasons I say that is because when he saw Stephen and heard him preach about Jesus Christ, he was he was the guy that allowed those who were stoning him to death to put their outer garments as his feet and he would watch them for them. And in the next step we read about in the Bible in his career, he was off to a faraway city to kill Christians, have them first jailed and then ultimately killed. That was Paul. My my point is, he still had remnants of sin, whatever exactly they were. And he said to overcome them, He expressed it figuratively because I don't think he actually did beat his body, but he expressed it that way. I have to fight against myself what's sinful in me. So I'm not saying that overcoming sin in general is an easy thing. And I am not saying either that there are no especially complicated sins in people's lives or in their situations that they might need a little bit more than to just say to them, just stop that and start doing this. And in fact, that's one of the reasons that one of our jobs as pastors is to do what we call pastoral counseling because things are difficult in lives. But I am saying that there's this phenomenon in this world that we live in, and I presume none of us is immune to it, and that is that people excuse themselves from resisting sin the way the Bible says we should. If you're not aware of this, that is a common phenomenon even among Christians. It's possible, I'm saying, in other words, that even you sitting here today might find yourself saying at some point, or maybe you've said it at some point in the past, well, I agree with everything you're saying about Romans 6, including verses 12 and 13, but... My sins are different. And maybe they're having the conversation after the sermon about this, and someone says, yeah, Pastor Chansky really nailed it today. And then you say, well, my sins are different. You don't struggle the way I do. And what are you saying, in effect? You're saying this, because of who I am, I have an excuse not to do what you're telling me to do, not to take your admonition really to heart all that much or feel bad about it. Let me just give you a couple of answers. If you say something like that or find yourself thinking that way, first thing I'll say is this. You can be assured that Christians who do not have great trouble with the sin that you have great trouble with, you can be assured that they nevertheless have some sin or some sins 
that do in fact give them great grief and great trouble in their lives. Everybody is not like you. And everybody is not like me. And I'll be the first one to say about that, thanks be to God. But everybody has battles against some sin. So that's the first thing I say to you. The second thing I would say is this. There are people in this world, and maybe even people you know well, and maybe even people in this church that you know well, that even if they do struggle with the same sin that you have to fight against, or maybe we could say they did struggle the way you're struggling in time past in their life, the reason they don't have those depths of struggles to this day, or at least they don't appear to have that depth of struggle that you might, is that they have been engaged in seriously mortifying those sins. Just look with me for a moment at Romans 12, verse 2. I'll preach on this, God willing, before too long. It's a similar, in fact, let me read verses 1 and two, along with verse 2, because it's a similar idea that we have in Romans 6. Paul starts out, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So he's focusing on gospel truth, chapters 9 to 11. He comes to the beginning of chapter 12, and he says, in light of those great truths... Present yourselves to, to God, a living sacrifice, your body. Similar language that we have in our verses, verse 12 and 13 of Romans 6. And then he says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In other words, imagine here a Christian who fights with a certain sin and he needs to not be conformed to this world in that area. Well, but it's tough for me not to be like the world. I still feel the pull. I still feel the drag. I'll admit it. I still find some level of pleasure in the moment when I indulge in those sins. Maybe not the next morning. My conscience bothers me now because I'm a believer, but I still have the battle. All right, notice how it says he's to engage himself. You prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And I'll say more about this when we get there, but the idea of proving there is this. You test something to see if it really works, and if it does work, then you've proved that it worked. That's the idea. So it's, it's, it's against my way of thinking, because I'm still too conformed to the world in my way of thinking right now, that if I live that way, my life is going to be miserable. Because I've done it all these years, and even as a Christian, I've still kind of dipped my foot in and indulged myself to the point that I kind of, you know, have a truce with that sin. But I like it too much to just run away from it. All right, that's worldly thinking, and it's got to stop, Paul is saying. And how should it stop? You prove the, will, the, the good will of God by testing 
So in other words, you say, my flesh says yes to that, but my Lord says no, and so I'm going to follow my Lord. I'm not going to let sin reign. I'm not going to present my members to it. I'm going to present them to God. I'm going to present myself to God. So on a daily basis, having heard Romans 6, 12, and 13, I'm going to remember some of those images and I'm going to say, Lord, help me not to present these eyes to look on sinful things, my brain to think about sinful things, my hands to touch or do sinful things. I'm not going to do it anymore. And he tries it. And it's difficult. It's, like, it's almost like cutting off a right hand or gouging out a right eye. It's that difficult to fight. And it's that, it feels that painful and I worry that I'm going to miss that right hand. And I'm going to miss that right eye. But I, I do it. Because I love my Lord and I love my soul. I don't want to be at the left hand on the last day. And I do it. That's the idea. So maybe the person you're talking to who you say doesn't understand. Maybe he does understand. And you say, well, I, well I've, I've tried to do that. I've done that. And your friend says to you, so what happened? And you say, well, it didn't work. And he says, really? And you say, yeah, so I stopped. Is that what the Bible says? Think about Jesus' words. He who what? perseveres to the end will be saved. Your perseverance doesn't save you. Paul is simply saying, this is how real Christians are and how they ought to live. God has done something in them. There's a famous saying by a man named G.K. Chesterton who said this. He said, the Christian ideal, he means of living and of the world, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Now that applies to evangelism, doesn't it? And Jesus says to unbelievers, you should approach the Christian gospel that way. Jesus says what? Count the cost. Giving yourself to Christ means a life of denying yourself to the liberty to sin and doing what God says. Count the cost. And then he says, take up the cross and follow me. Take it up daily, he says, and follow me. My point is, that saying that the Christian life has been found difficult and left untried can apply to this point. And the point is, when you see what the Bible says about how to fight against sin, and then when you start trying to do it, believe me, this is what always will happen. Sin, which has been relatively quiet up to that point, because it's happy with the truths. It's got you coming day after day. Even if you don't indulge to the point that you'd be kicked out of the church. It's happy with that truth. But as soon as you say it's going to be different today, sin is not going to just run out the back door. Sin is not going to roll over and die. That's the idea. Don't stop. 
Paul stated it in Galatians 6. Well, let's look over there. Galatians 6, he stated it this way. A few epistles down the road here. Galatians 6, starting at verse 7. He says, do not be, he's talking to, writing to Christians here. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Paul is talking about the exact same thing here as he was in Romans chapter 6. Not presenting your members to sin. Do present your members to God in Christ. Every day, all the time. After he says, if you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap everlasting life. Who wouldn't want that? Why does he say then, let us not grow weary while doing good? Because it's hard. So don't grow weary while doing good. Did you start that once? Go back and start again. And persevere to the end. I like to say to people, kill your sin or at least die fighting. And that's the case really with all our sin, isn't it? There's going to be some remnants. I mean, thanks be to God that most Christians can say there are some sins that were peculiar sins in my life that I don't even think about anymore. And not that means you don't think about them, you just do them. That means they don't struggle anymore. But the point is, brethren, we shouldn't interpret any of this teaching in Romans chapter 6, especially verses 12 and 13, that Paul is stating it like this. Try this, at least for a bit. Maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. That's not how he presents it. He's saying, do this. Because that's what you are in Christ if you're a Christian. But then the next, let me focus on the difficulty for a moment. And I'll just say a couple of things here about the difficulty. I've spoken about the simplicity. Now the difficulty. And the difficulty is this. On the one hand, we make it difficult for ourselves. Because of our love of ourselves. Our desire to uh, protect ourselves because of our love for sin and our desire to protect our sins, because of our laziness. That's one of the reasons, as I was just saying, we make it difficult for ourselves. But on the other hand, like I said, it is difficult. The fight against sin is difficult. Jesus compared it. I, I quoted him on this. He compared it to cutting off your right hand or gouging out your right eye. It's self-denial. That's what the fight against sin is. It is difficult. It takes perseverance. But the Bible's answer to difficult situations is never to retreat. It's never to give up just because you are weak. You have God on your side if you're a Christian. You have the work of Christ that he's already accomplished and that he's going to work out in your life. Let me just quote Martin Lloyd-Jones to finish this point. He says, and he was writing, I think, or preaching, and then the, uh, the sermons or lectures went into book form back in the early 1960s. So what, something like 60 years ago, I think. 
He said, let us get rid of the flabby sentimental ideas and this morbid interest in ourselves and our desire simply for something to help us. In other words, he says, that's not the approach to the Christian life you should have. That the church is the place that's going to help me to feel good. That's what it's all about. And Lloyd-Jones goes on. The main trouble with the Christian church today, he said, if that was true in the 1960s, the main trouble with the Christian church today is that she is too much like a clinic, too much like a hospital. That is why the great world outside is going to hell. We are all feeling our own pulses and talking about ourselves and our moods and subjective states. We have lost the concept of the army of God and the king of righteousness in this fight against the kingdom of evil. What can I do to be delivered, we tend to say. Lloyd-Jones says, I answer, look at the great battle. Look at it objectively. Look at it from God's standpoint. Forget yourself and your temporary troubles and ills for the moment. Fight in the army. It is not a clinic that you need. You must realize that we are in a barracks and that we are involved in a mighty battle. Now, Lloyd-Jones can often state things in a very black and white way. The typical army does have clinics, but it mainly has barracks, doesn't it? And so the church should do the work of a clinic. He was against the idea that the church is just a clinic. I think you understand it. Let me go on to the last thing I was going to say, the second thing I left out. And that is simply, once again, to say something about the mind or the role of the mind in fighting against sin. I mentioned last time, a couple of weeks ago, that sanctification, the battle, the victory against sin, it begins, it has to begin in the mind. We could say the mind is key throughout. The mind always plays an important part in the battle against sin. That's why Paul starts here in Romans 6, 11, the first, remember it was the first imperative, the first command in the whole epistle, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. Understand what Christ has done in his work on the cross. Understand that how that applies to you as a Christian because you are in spiritual union with him. Understand those things and then live in that light. Understand what he's done. Understand your union. It's happened to you, not just to Christ. And then Adopt this mindset and get to work at putting sin to death, resisting it, fighting against it. And let me close this point with um, another illustration. And I think it's one I've used in the past, but I like the illustration and I'm going to use it again here. I think in the past I spoke about, um, about Tom Brady. Many of you are familiar with that name, even if you're not into sports. Perhaps the greatest quarterback ever in football. And I remember hearing a, um, uh, a sports writer or a sports commentator talking about, I think he was actually, he was a sports writer who was also a former professional football player. And he said, you know, when Tom Brady is working out before the game, throwing passes, he said, most quarterbacks, they're just throwing passes back and forth and so on, warming up for the game. He says, not Tom Brady. Tom Brady, every single thing he did 
he was thinking of the game going on and how, as he glanced over at the other team during his warm-ups, we are going to wipe up the field with you. I, in my play today, am going to destroy you, my opponent. What I'm saying is, Paul, in Romans 6, is encouraging you and me to have that mindset and that attitude against sin. Tom Brady didn't win every game he played, but he won a lot more than most other guys. And one of the reasons he did is because even after a loss, he kept coming back with that same mentality. And you might say, well, see, Tom Brady is an elite athlete. There aren't many like him. And I can tell you for sure, I am not like him when it comes to our spiritual battle. My answer to that is don't compare apples and oranges. In Romans 6, Paul is telling us something that is true about all Christians. You've died to sin. You're alive to God. You do walk in newness of life if you're a Christian. It's true about all Christians. Don't compare apples and oranges, but do have Tom Brady's attitude. Think of it this way. Think of one of his Super Bowl teams that he played on. And in the game against, in, in the Super Bowl, the other team playing against his New England Patriots is going to be a high school girls powder puff team. I don't know if they call it that anymore, but that's what they used to call girls flag football teams, all right? I would sign up to quarterback that team, the Patriots. And I would be confident of a win. Well, think of what the Bible says about you as a Christian. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, if you are a Christian. Think of the words of Elisha, the prophet in the Old Testament, to his servant. Do not fear those do not fear, people were coming after them. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And when God opened the eyes of his servant to see that the mountain was filled with horses and chariots of fire. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul is saying that our contest is like as a Christian? That's what he's saying. That's what it's like. It's as if the other team showed up for the Super Bowl and you say, well, I'm not Tom Brady, but the other team, it's the proper team, all right. But every one of the people on the team is in crutches or in a sling, limping, being wheeled onto the field. Could you win that game? Yes, with the New England Patriots. This is what the Bible is saying. Because Christ in his work on the cross, the Bible says, has disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the, his work on the cross. Has he entirely defeated sin in our lives? No. But has he really defeated it? Yes. And should you and I live as though that's the case, the answer to that is yes. And that is what Paul is telling us 
in this passage. And let me now close with one final word to unbelievers. You may hear this teaching of the Bible about sin and about fighting against sin, about slavery to sin and the power of sin has been broken in the life of a Christian and so on. And you may not see it exactly as I do. You may not see it the way the Bible sees it. As an unbeliever, you don't. But you may know, you may know, I don't, I'm not saying for sure, you may know that you are in bondage in your life to something that the Bible calls sin, something that violates God's law. In the inner man, you know it's wrong, and now it's starting to catch up to you in your life. You may know that. You may even have pinpointed the actual specific sin or sins that has you locked up in chains. And it would be the thing that if you were to have a face-to-face -face conversation with the God of heaven today, it would be the thing that God would bring up and say, we need to talk about this because it's either going to happen now or it's going to happen in the day of judgment where you stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. And you may be at a point in your life where you wish you could stop doing that thing, whether it's lying, whether it's drugs, whether it's living an immoral life, whether it's stealing things from other people, whether it's just hating people in your heart and you know you shouldn't or bitterness in your heart, whatever it is. And you may have tried to overcome that in one way or another. And you may know Christians who have told you, I used to have that same problem. And you said, what did you do? And they said, well, here's what I did. I trusted in Jesus Christ to save me, and he delivered me. And you thought, really? You may say, but I've really tried to overcome that, but there is no power to do it. Of course there's not. Because the only one place in this world that there is power to overcome sin in the life of a human being and to break the chains of sin that hold us and keep us in bondage starts at the cross of Jesus Christ. Whereas we read in Psalm 22 at the beginning today, he was humbled to the point of a cruel and terrible death on the cross. And Paul says in Romans 6, the way that that power comes into your life to break the chains of sin is that you are humbled in repenting of your sins, acknowledging you're a sinner, and asking God to forgive those sins for Jesus Christ's sake, and then believing in Jesus that is humbling yourself to the point that you say, I know that he is my only hope. And then you cast yourself upon him, not caring what anybody thinks about it, but just wanting to save your soul on the last day. That is the one way. May God open your eyes. May God humble you. May he bring you to salvation from sin today. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ, your son. Thank you for liberation from sin in and through him. Father, break in today into our lives. We may be Christians, but we still have the shackles of sin 
to a, degrader, to a greater degree than we would wish. And we ask that you would break them more and more beginning this day. We pray that you would bring some into your kingdom by snapping their chains and the iron doors that have barred them from glory and from you. And we ask that you would do it this very day. In Jesus Christ, your Son's name, amen.